Well, hello, everyone. Um, yeah, if I, if I haven't met you before, uh, my name's Jim, and I used to lead Fishy. Um, Fishy was the middle school ministry here for years and years and years. How many of you uh, either had a kid or somebody? Okay, so, oh my gosh, look at the hands. That's, that's amazing. Um, so, uh, but I, I kind of want to start just by acknowledging something. I'm, I'm guessing just about everybody who spoke uh, this, at this um, event has probably said this. Just the history of this church is mind-boggling. Uh, to me. And in fact, uh, is Harlan here? Okay, where is Harlan Shoup? Okay, so that's Harlan Shoup. Have I, I don't, I've never met Harlan Shoup. I don't, have we ever met? <laughs> All right, come here. How are you, man? Okay, so here's the deal with Harlan Shoup. If you go read those signs out there, one of the signs will say 1967. I think is what it said. Harlan Shoup um, promotes and really gets going the youth ministry of, at the time, First Presbyterian Church. Um, Harlan, I have never met you before, but I just want you to know that um, for me, part of the reason I follow Jesus is because of you. Uh, and I, I just think that's amazing. Yeah, man, way to go, bro. <laughs> um, so it, it's just super cool to actually get to say, you know, you didn't, I, I wasn't born until 73, sorry. Um, everybody's doing math right now. 48, just stop, okay? Uh, my birthday's two weeks from today. Uh, 49, yeah. So, but you, you had a huge impact on people and you're part of that history. And part of that history is Dave, who will be up here sharing in a second, who was my youth pastor. Dave doesn't remember this. He, he always denies that the story is true. But he umpired my baseball games, and we just kind of called him church guy umpire. Um, you know, and, and I wasn't involved in a church, faith-wise. There's just nothing there for me. And I remember once hitting a ground ball and getting thrown out at first base, and I crossed the bag at Scott Carpenter Park, and I'm swearing every four-letter word because I'm so angry that I got thrown out. And I look up, and who is umpiring first base? It is church guy umpire. And, and church guy umpire looks at me, and he calls me out. And then I was expecting him to, like, shame me, or, hey, you shouldn't be swearing on the diamond, or that kind of thing. And you know what he did? He looked at me, and he winked at me. And I went back to the first base dugout at Scott Carpenter Park, and I was puzzled. Why did church guy umpire wink at me? And, and I sat there thinking about it, and finally I just went, I wonder if he just likes me. That's, literally, this is what I thought. I wonder if he just likes me, because he kind of befriended me out there. And my next thought was, I wonder if God's like that too. That was a huge part of me coming to faith. So you got Harlan, you got Dave, you've got this history uh, in this church that, isn't that funny that God does stuff, like, you didn't envision Scott Carpenter Park in a wink, but that's, that's how God works over time, right? And so, guys, the, the story will continue, and God will continue to do these amazing things that we would have never expected, okay? So, um, so I want to talk about church planting, and that's just a fancy word for new churches, 
And I, I got to be honest, like over the years I've been asked so many times, why in the world would we start new churches anyway? It, there's already plenty of churches, right? I mean, you go to some cities and there's like, you know, go to Texas. There's like churches on every corner. Like, why in the world would we begin any kind of new churches when there's already churches existing? Why wouldn't we just try to strengthen the existing churches that are already there? That's a super fair question. Um, to get there, I kind of want to uh, show you something. I'm going to um, chart my life for you in just a moment. So here, here's kind of how my life has gone and where I think it's going. It, it started here, right, at birth. Uh, I was born right down, what was the old hospital on Broadway called? Was it Community? Okay, that's where I was born, right? September 23rd, 1973, 7.38 p.m. That's where I was born. Started growing up in this town, Boulder, in the 70s. It was actually really fun. I don't remember much of it. But I'm growing, and uh, I got involved in Little League Baseball, and we won the Little League State Championship when I was 12. We went to San Bernardino and played in that. I know North Boulder does that every year. North Boulder, right? We're, we were South Boulder. So, so we're growing up, things are going great. I get into high school and I started to have to be a little bit more intentional about the things I was doing in life. Like early in life was just momentum and things happen kind of naturally, but as you get older, you gotta start to think about them a little bit more. And so I you know, ended up going to CU and then um, met my wife. And, Karen Candy, who was Karen Hegner, actually grew up in Boulder as well. And we got married, and we had a couple kids, Josh and Micah. And man, there was just this kind of period of life that was just felt like we were kind of in the zone. Uh, things were going well for us. Ministry was great. Karen was great. We're young. We got a lot of energy. Our kids are wonderful. Just had this great kind of period until, I think it was like 10 years ago. I go to the doctor and they're like looking around in my head and they're like, you've got this like spot on your head. And sure enough, I've got to go back and they pull this big thing out of my head. And, um, and I, I end up having this little deal cancer, pre-cancer, pulled out of my head, and they wrapped this huge bandage around my head that I had to wear for like a week. It was very embarrassing. But it was like the first time where I was kind of faced with this idea of like, huh, like maybe I'm not as like young and energetic as I used to be. Uh, and then I started losing my hair. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, look, I'm looking at pictures. You know those alpine slides? I was on an alpine slide and somebody snapped a photo of me coming down the hill on the alpine slide and I couldn't believe it. My hair, like I had no hair on my head even though I wanted hair on my head. Guys, I'm looking like Donnie Meeks all of a sudden, right? And I don't want to look like Donnie Meeks. I wanted hair. And so it's kind of like, it just feels like a little bit of this going on. Like, Maybe, maybe I'm not in the kind of the zone that I was in at one point, and I'm starting to kind of fall off a little bit on the other side. I'm 49, or just about 49. Um, there is so much great 
life ahead, and God's going to do incredible things. Um, but I cannot sleep at night without a backache. You know, it's just this weird thing where it's like every morning at 3 a.m., if I don't take Advil, I'm awake. And it, it's not the kind of same energy that I had when I was staying up till 3 a.m. with 100 middle school kids back when I was leading fishy. I have a feeling on where this is going. Eventually, we're going here, right? Because that's just how life is. You live, you kind of fall off, and then we don't, we're gone. And I, I think about kind of my life cycle and my trajectory, and I think the kind of ironic thing is you can actually take this cycle and transport that and look at different kinds of organizations. This isn't just the life cycle of people. This can often be the life cycle of an organization. You look at, um, I think of Kodak Film, okay? Kodak Film, like, you know, they, they had their day and went right over the other side. And anybody using Kodak Film anymore? Okay, good, yeah. And it also can be true of churches. You know, if you trace back and you look at the um, arc of churches over history, um, even the churches, you think back and if you've read the book of Acts, you've got this guy, the Apostle Paul, and Paul is out and he's traveling, and what does he do when he goes into a new town? He doesn't just get into conversations with people about faith. He does what? He establishes a church in that place. He tells Titus in Titus chapter 1, go into every city and appoint an elder in that town. His goal is not just to make converts in those places. His goal is to set up communities. Jesus in the Great Commission says, I want you to go into all nations and make disciples. And then what does he say? It's not just making disciples. <clears throat> Baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do we know about baptism? Baptism is kind of the inclusion into the Christian community. So as you look at what Jesus is saying there, he's not just saying, make people followers of me. He's saying, baptize them into a community of people who are following me. And that means we've got to make communities. Even the Great Commission, in a way, is talking about go out and plant communities in the world. Church plant. Paul was a church planter. Jesus is a church planter. And so as we um, think about kind of the life of a church, what's ironic is you think about those churches that Paul planted in cities like Corinth and Ephesus and Rome. Do any of those original communities exist anymore? The answer is no. You, you can't go and find like Paul's church of Ephesus. At least I know of. Right? That church has disappeared, but it's been replaced by believers who over time continued to innovate and continued to create something new. And they lived into what is the very first verb of the Bible. In the beginning, God what? Created. He created. 
And so to go and to create something new really is in line with what it means to be created in the image of God. So as I think about um, churches, sometimes what we hear about arguments on not planting churches is I think kind of in, in a way the mistaken idea that a church will be born and in kind of, you know, perpetuity, it'll live its life. But in the end, it's always going to exist. Um, as you guys know, I helped plant a church in Louisville, Ascent Church. I'm firmly convinced Ascent Church will have a day where it is not actually being as impactful as it once was. There is no question. Why? Because there's a life cycle of churches and organizations. And it follows often the same way that we as human beings are ourselves. So um, I want to show you just a little bit of kind of, and, and trust me, I'm getting to this idea of church planning. But the idea often with churches are that they start, right? A church will start with great vision. Like when we planted Ascent, we had nothing. We had no money. I was two days from not being able to pay my health insurance. You know, we, Karen was freaked out. So was I. We didn't have anything. All we had was vision that we wanted to reach people in Superior and Louisville and Lafayette. That's how church plants start. That's exactly how this church started 150 years ago. I guarantee it. There were, there were 10 people you read about on the board out there. And what they had was vision. But as they get going, right, into kind of that childhood phase, they start picking up relationships. And so now we've got vision and we've got who. And then as you get older into adolescence and you start got to get a little bit more sophisticated about what you're doing, you add ministries into that kind of mix. And then there's this great period, right, of maturity, kind of adulthood, where it's vision and relationships and ministries, and then you add to that structure. And guys, that is a kind of window of time that is just magic for a church or kind of any kind of organization. What, what a lot of people say about churches is that really the first 10 to 15 years is the time frame where they are most effective in reaching people that are new to Christ. About the first 10 to 15 years. And the average church usually will end this period, right, and, and start to kind of go on the backside about 30 or 40 years into their existence. You guys think about that with this church. The, the kind of average church community that God builds, like 30 to 40 years in, starts to kind of decline. Think of the incredible history of this church. 150 years? Are you kidding me? That's something to just celebrate so much that Harlan, 95 years in to the existence, kicks off youth ministry. The way God has used his church is just amazing. When you look at kind of how, what the kind of average is on how church life cycles go. What's interesting then for most churches is that they get through this period and they kind of turn the corner 
And the first thing to usually go is vision. So uh, on this side of the equation, you kind of get the pluses, right? It's vision plus relationships. It's plus ministry. It's plus structure. As things go on the other side, you start to get minuses. Minus vision is usually the first to go. Then relationships start to disappear. Then ministries, and you're left at the end, at least of a lot of organizations and a lot of churches, you're left with structure, is, is, is where a church could end up at. Here's why I'm telling you this. What I'm praying for this church and any church, you know, that, that conceives of itself, I pray this for ascent. There is a point along this route where a church will make a decision whether or not it will multiply. I think about my life, I know where it's going. I chose to have kids, right? I chose to have, I'm praying I get grandkids someday. Do you guys realize that right now in the U.S., only about 7%, 7% of churches are reproducing. Can you imagine if only 7% of our parents were having kids? That'd be a bit of an issue, right? Actually, the slopes at Vail would be a lot less crowded in... <laughs> Maybe Dave and I's fly fishing rivers would be less crowded too. But, but that's not a healthy picture. Is it, as we think about churches and church planting, part of it is realizing there is a natural kind of arc of organizations that says we need R&D. We need to invest in something new. Um, some of you guys know Tim Keller. I left my little sheet down here. Uh, Tim Keller's a uh, Presbyterian pastor in New York, who, if you haven't read Tim Keller's stuff, you need to. Um, he's just a phenomenal thinker. But kind of how Tim Keller describes this is he's thinking about churches, and he says, as a congregation ages, powerful internal institutional pressures lead it to allocate most of its resources and energy toward the concerns of its members and constituents rather than toward outside its walls, right? Man, I can so relate to that. Uh, just in my own life, and even Ascent being this church that was young, like, we quickly turned to thinking about those people in our own walls. Now, we would never want to admit that, but it was easy, I, at least I'll speak for me, I found myself doing that. And so what he's saying, what, what Tim Keller is saying is the greatest way to combat that in a church is to say, we're going to create new communities. We believe that new leaders need to be unleashed to think differently. And we actually think that that is going to come back and help us as a parent church as well. Um, I'm going to, I'm taking too much time, so I'm going to cut it short and turn it over to Dave here. But I, but I do want to show you this. As we talk about 7% being that number um, of churches that are reproducing, did you know that if you look at the U.S., 
per capita, we are at the lowest point of church planting per capita in our history. That's a, that's a big deal. Um, and I don't know, I don't have the clicker, but maybe one of you guys can put that up. You can see kind of even back, you know, in the 1800s, everything's new and everybody's planting churches, right? Everybody's planting a church. And then it kind of died down as you hit the 1900s. And then post-World War II, there's kind of this spike of church planting activity. And then as you go along in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, you see it continue to decline per capita church planting. Is we need new communities. Let me end with this thought uh, from Tim Keller. Tim Keller says again, the vigorous, continual planting of new congregations is the single most crucial strategy for, first, the numerical growth of the body of Christ in a city. Just think about that for a second. This is Tim Keller. This is, this is the number one strategy for people coming to know Christ in the city is new, new church communities. And two, this is great, the continual corporate renewal and revival of the existing churches in a city. As when we put new communities into a place, the existing communities actually thrive as well. And so that's... Uh, that's, that's kind of the argument for church planting, and uh, Dave's going to give a little more, right? Are you yeah. going to wink at me? I'm not going to wink at you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's interesting, following Jim up here is a little bit like when we're fishing together. Usually we get out of the car, and, and um, I sort of defer, and and Jim will take all the holes, and then I find myself fishing the same holes he's already been in, and they're fished out. So that's what it feels like a little bit, is, you know. <laughs> I want to affirm what uh, Jim said uh, about just the um, impact this church has had on my life, and how thankful I am for um, so many faces I've, I've, I've seen out here. It's, it's been a long time. We've all been through a lot in that time, uh, and yet I'm so thankful for uh, just the faithfulness and the people who've equipped me and mentored me. Um, so I, I want to thank you for that. Thank you for letting me marry in to the church uh, in some ways uh, with Lisa. Uh, there's much to celebrate with this 150 years. And uh, I didn't realize, Don, you were doing it, Don Meek, so I was really glad to see you because um, I wasn't here when Don was here, but we kept a little relationship. And so really, um, really thankful for, for him being here. Well, I'm going to go a little different direction. I don't have a flip chart, and I'm not going to talk about how to plant churches or why we should plant churches. Um, I am a church planter. I'm my second plant. Um, I actually coached church planters for 10 years as well in the PCUSA. Um, I love planting churches. I love some of the dynamics that Jim talked about that are really true in terms of, of, of uh, bringing people into a community of faith um, that, that were disconnected, that didn't know the hope of the gospel, and, and it's a huge joy, a huge passion uh, in my life. But I've, I've titled this um, Theological Musings Related to Church Planting, because I, uh, I grew up thinking my whole life, probably about the age of 45, that I was just a guy who liked sports and had a lot of energy, and it, it wasn't until I took strength finders 
that I realized that uh, I so much have loved my whole life, the life of the mind. I've loved thinking through things. Uh, so as much as I'm extroverted, there's this huge introverted piece to me that loves to think about things and connect the world of ideas. And it's, it's just, it's big for me. And uh, when, when asked to uh, come be a part of this and, and Jim and I uh, talking about it, uh, for me, um, I'm always concerned about what's underneath everything. What's the grounding? Um, and having been in ministry now for over 30 years, I've seen a lot. Um, I've seen a lot come through and the new stuff that's come through, and I've always been suspicious, um, when it, whether it's church planting or just in the church at large. So um, I want to talk tonight. I'm looking at the time, Jim. No, I'm going to talk tonight. Um, I just want to share a little bit about what I've been wrestling with for 30-some years, and I'm going to try to condense it into 20 minutes. So I am going to go fast. I hope mostly just to whet your appetite, but what I think is critical for the church I know, which is for the most part the Anglo, white, upper-middle-class church in the United States. So I can't speak for the church worldwide. I wouldn't begin to. Um, I won't speak for the African-American church, but I'll, I'll speak for what I know and what I see going, going on. So I want to, to, just in my short time, I want to talk about the gospel itself because I think it's critical. My hope for church planting, for new communities of faith, for churches that are somewhere on this ark that Jim talked about, my hope is in the gospel. It's clear to me after these many years at Harlan, you'll, I think you'll appreciate this. Harlan is a mentor of mine. He's my uncle-in-law. Uh, um, he, he, uh, I interned for him when I was in seminary. I'd say the same things with Jim and Larry and Margaret and everything that happened in the 60s for the youth ministry. I was a beneficiary of that and got to participate in that. What I've learned in that whole time, and I know you would echo this, is that uh, we do not necessarily need more talented or entrepreneurial leaders. I, I know there'd be pushback on that. That's not our greatest need by any means. We don't need new models necessarily. We don't need new denominations or old denominations. We don't need new community churches necessarily. My hope in the future of planting churches and the church is not better funding. It's not better worship bands or better theology, or, or I'm sorry, better technology. It's not in better training or better consultants, or better anything, better anything. Those are all important, they can play a role, but that's not where my hope is. My hope is not in those things. My hope is not that we can think, or effort, or even vision our way out of what we all feel. It's a little bit, if you're in the church, like that cult Hollywood movie, Dazed and Confused. That's what the church feels like, a little bit, following Jesus uh, in our time. My hope is in the gospel. That's my hope. I want to unpack that because that can sound old school, like, well, we're not going to deal with any of this new stuff. We don't want to deal with it, so we're just going to go back, and, and that's not what I'm saying either. My hope is in the gospel, and I want to talk about that a little bit um, this evening. Uh, John Ortberg, uh, Jim's former boss, friend, uh, once shared a story. I don't know if it's true. You can tell me if you've heard this or if it's true. Maybe you heard him do it live. I don't know. But a woman in his church had, had told him a story of, of her interaction with her, her, her daughter. Her daughter was three or four or five. And her daughter was incredibly strong-willed. 
which sounds like a lot of my four kids, I think they get it from their mother, and uh, incredibly strong-willed, and uh, she would take her big wheel, and even though the mom had said, you can, you can drive it only in the driveway, and then you have to stop at the boundaries of our property, um, she would just keep transcending those boundaries. She'd just keep going. So one day, the mom goes outside, and she kind of fingers over to her daughter. She's just fed up with this kid, and and um, the daughter comes over in her big wheel with her hands on the handles, and, and she's at the proper line. She said, you see this line right here? Do not cross this line. If you do, if you go across this line, I'm going to spank you. And the daughter looked up at her mom and said, well, you better spank me now because i got places to go. Right? <laughs> the gospel the good news of Jesus and his kingdom is on the move, and he calls us to follow. And he calls us to move forward into a future that he has planned for us, even as God in his future is moving towards us. So I think the most important thing that we need to be doing as we raise up leaders for new church planting or people who plant new communities, and there's all kinds of cool models and things that people are doing that are just outside the box, and they are really cool. But the most important thing in that, the most important thing in a church that's in transition, a church that's, that's figuring out what its next steps are, uh, figuring out how um, um, to, to, to be God's people in this time and place, the most important thing we can do is rehear the gospel. In humility, in openness, rehear the gospel, to get ourselves grounded in what the gospel is about. But here's where things, I think, get a bit fuzzy. Most of you probably think you know what the gospel is. You've been in this church for a long time. You've followed Jesus for a long time. Um, And so it can get a little fuzzy. It can even get uncomfortable or disorienting if we really rehear the gospel. So what is the gospel? Evangelion, the good news. What is the gospel? I'm just going to ask you that. Actually, this is what we're going to do. You're going to answer that question. You're going to take two minutes, minute and a half. Turn to your neighbor. Your neighbor asks, what is the gospel? And you say, go ahead, what is the gospel? Okay, you guys look like you're giving amazing answers. Oh, you're still going? Okay, Bigner's Bigner's taking a little more time than Jesus did. This is the fun thing. So here's the fun thing. I I talk with uh, people all the time, and, you know, uh, I have a friend. We've talked about um, all kinds of different theological things, and he comes from, is in a little different tradition in the church, and and might be talking about end times or this or that, and I'm just pulling my hair out like, how do you get there? And I finally said one day, you know what? Let's put all of that aside, and let's just for a moment, let's just ask the question, what is the gospel? In fact, let's push even further. Let's ask the question, what does Jesus say the gospel is? 
Like, that seems like it'd be a great place to start. We can get to Paul, even though Paul often is interpreted in the wrong way, and people read Jesus through Paul, but they read Paul wrongly, and so they read Jesus wrongly through Paul. What does Jesus himself say the gospel is? Because here's the great thing. We don't have to deal with all these outlying issues. Jesus is very clear on this in Scripture. It's not David's spin on something. It's what Jesus says. Here's what he says in the Gospel of Mark Uh, Beginning with verse 1, the beginning of the good news, the euangelion, the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah who represents God and his redemption, that the the Israelites were, the Hebrew people were just waiting for God to break in and do a new thing, uh, to redeem and to restore what God had created. That's what they're waiting for in the Messiah. So when you read Messiah or um, um, Jesus Christ in Paul's letters, uh, you've got to think about Christ not as his last name, but as this whole body, this whole story of Scripture from Genesis that gets completed in Revelation. But in Genesis and what the prophets long for, that that's what God was doing in Jesus. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, and in verse 14, after John was put in prison or was handed over, Jesus went into Galilee. Here's what it says. This is what's really cool. Proclaiming the good news of God the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. That coming near is like an axe right at the, you're swinging right at the root of a tree. It's here, it's right there. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, turn around, we'll come back to that, metanoia, and believe the good news. What's the good news? Somebody. Jesus said it, he just said it. What's the good news? The kingdom of God is near or the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's just say that. If someone asks you what is the good news, and we can unpack this in a moment, but what is the good news? The kingdom of God is at hand. The good news, first and foremost, isn't that Jesus died for my sins. That's good news. That's a part of the good news, but that's just a bit too small, according to Jesus. There's something bigger going on here. The good news is that the kingdom of God has come near. It is at hand. That's the same message Jesus preaches in Matthew 4. It's the same message, actually, for these church-planting disciples that that he says in Matthew 10, uh, as he sends them out in Matthew 10. It's the same message that Jesus proclaims and then expounds upon using Isaiah in Luke 4. This is what Jesus says in Luke 4. I don't have it up there. But he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, as he quotes Isaiah, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is huge. That is something big that has invaded earth. What we realize when we listen and rehear what Jesus teaches about the good news from, is that the story from Genesis to Revelation, this story of God's desire, God's intent, God's working, God's activity to redeem and restore all of creation, including David Barton or a cussing baseball player. That's God's desire. The struggle I have as I think about what it means to rehear the gospel is that for the most part, the church in the West has had a much narrower gospel. We've had a gospel, this is a bit of a straw man, but it's not a stretch, that the gospel is about getting people to heaven. 
That's how we've generally practically understood the gospel about getting people to heaven. And yet Jesus, when he comes and announces the good news, is announcing that heaven has come to earth, that God's reign has come to earth to redeem and to restore. And it makes a world of difference which foot you put yourself, uh, uh, which, uh, uh, which side you put your foot down on. Because if you put your foot down on a gospel that's basically about getting to heaven, me getting to heaven, and the rest of it's secondary or tertiary, then, then we have cut faith and life with Jesus off from everyday life. But if the gospel is about something God is doing, that God invites us into, but God is doing here, today, in our world that so desperately needs the redemption of the gospel, then now our lives are filled with meaning. Our lives are filled with, with a reason for existing. So this idea of the gospel of the kingdom versus getting people to heaven, I think, is just a primary issue still at war in the church in terms of, of theology and, and our thinking. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a massive issue. I want to give you a couple, couple things to think about related to it. If the gospel is about getting me to heaven, and who knows what happens here, if that's what it's about, then issues of justice are secondary. They're not really central to the gospel. They're good things we maybe could do, but they're secondary or tertiary, or not even on our list. But if the gospel is the good news of what Isaiah talked about that God would come and do and set captives free and, and, and um, heal the lame and give sight to the blind and set, yeah, set prisoners free. If that gospel is what God is up to, now issues of justice are a primary part of the gospel. They can't not be because that's God's intent. Faith and life are not held together well with a gospel that says this life doesn't really matter. It's mostly about getting to heaven and make sure that's secured. Then, then our life today is devalued. It's interesting, I remember, um, I think I first heard it in Young Life, but I'm, I'm sure it was affirmed in seminary um, as well that... that um, you know, you've got the synoptic gospels. You know, you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John. I mean, we lo- I love John. You know, they got me reading John because John had something called realized eschatology, right? Anyone know that phrase? You've heard it? Realized yes. Come on, Sam, I know you've heard it. <laughs> this idea that, 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 that what we hope for, John, John just writes in a way and just gets at it that it's here now. You know, I've come that you might have life and, Right? But the synoptics don't deal with that. And I want to call complete foul ball on that. All of the language in the synoptics about the kingdom of God, which it is filled with, Jesus teaching on that, is realized eschatology. We have this phrase that we've used. You guys, I know you've heard it. You're very um, educated Presbyterians. This this idea of already, not yet. Um, That's realized eschatology. It, it, It has come. It has begun. This new age of heaven, which never in Scripture is far off, but is near anyhow, of heaven invading earth and heaven now reigning. Um, and we're in this tension between the age um, 
that is to come um, and, and the age of this world or the spirit of this world, okay? So this idea of the gospel of the kingdom versus getting people to heaven, it hurts us when we think about the world around us and think about our lives. How many people in here um, use the word secular? I'm just going to ask you a question on that. Secular. Okay. So now I'm going to go back to Eugene Peterson and just say Eugene Peterson um, um, was clear on this. It's not even a biblical word. But we hear Christians all the time talking about spiritual things and secular things. We've divided the world, right? We've divided the world around us. And Peter said, I love what he says, uh, because if if you think about um, the idea that it's just about getting to heaven, then yeah, that's where I want to be. I do my, my holy huddle stuff. I do my spiritual stuff. But the world out there is secular. And there are huge parts of the church that have insulated themselves from the world because of that. Insulated their families, their own bubbles, their own feedback loops, right? But it's not biblical language. Nowhere do we find secular in the scripture. And Peter said, I love what he does with this because he says it's just not even a biblical concept. It divides our world like this. It divides our life like this. He says the better language is holy and unholy. To be holy is to be attentive to the presence of God. That means that you could be in the most rundown, um, far away from church place in our community and be attentive to God's presence. Why? Because God reigns, because his kingdom has come, because the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, as the psalmist declares. But you could also be in church and be unholy because you could be in church and not be attentive to the presence of God. And if we think of a gospel that says, look, God came to save us out of this place, then we're going we're gonna to kind of live in this space where we've got our spiritual life and the rest of the stuff, we just be careful and we stay away from it because God's not in it. And I'm sharing that that totally contradicts the good news of Jesus Christ. Totally contradicts the good news of Jesus Christ and the reign of God. What happens if we hang on to this getting people to heaven, which is not a Jesus concept, and I'm going to tell you it's not even a Pauline concept in the way we think about it and have used it. It leads to an exodus from this world. It offers no hope to this world. It offers no hope, even as we plant churches, uh, to people who don't know Jesus, that kind of gospel doesn't, other than with a wink and a nod at the end, when you die, everything will be okay. But right now, we don't have a lot, of, a lot of hope. Versus an engagement of the world. I think it's holding on to this gospel of the kingdom that is our hope. It's where we gain our hope that there is a God who is actively working to redeem and restore. And, and, and those who have entered into his kingdom, he invites to bear witness to that reality, to a world that is in great despair. It changes the trajectory of how we'll plant churches if, if we're grounded in that. I want to uh, just uh, close here with a, a few really fast things. I've got 14 minutes, Jim, and I might be able to do this in eight minutes. And then we could... Um, I stole some stuff from Ray Donatucci. People know Ray, everyone here for the most part. I stole some stuff from Ray Donatucci 25 years ago. Uh, and, I, and I asked him if I could steal it, and he said yes. And I've massaged it over the years. Um, 
but one of the first things that um, churches that I served in in Vancouver, Washington, we did a core values thing. You guys, you know, as churches, we love to just restructure and do core values. And that's kind of what I said earlier. None of that's going to fix everything. It doesn't mean there's not good stuff in there, but that's not our hope, quite frankly. doesn't mean we don't need to engage in some of that, but that's not our hope. And I stole some stuff, and I've added some stuff, and, and I just want to run through this bullet list because I think when we, have a king, uh, gospel, when we have a gospel of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed and that we're entering into that, we will begin um, to be transformed in our values in a way that, that just getting people to heaven and, and running a church in a great way that can get more people in and get more people to heaven just won't do just want to. So I want to go over these, what I at one time called kingdom-oriented core values, and um, Ray's words are in a few of these. Um, there's some that didn't make the cut. You can tell them, uh, but they're good, and I liked them, and um, this is it. I think as we plant churches, as we think about a church, we need to think about truth over deception. I think it's critical. I, I don't think that um, in the church we've learned how uh, to do that well, and that's related to the second one, discernment over blind acceptance. I, I know John would never say this as a pastor. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had someone tell me that God told them to do X, Y, and Z. And I left scratching like, I don't think that was God's voice. I don't think that was God's will. It was a justification, right? Well, what happens in the church is we think about um, um, how we go not only about planting churches but leading churches is that there is a lot of um, blind acceptance. There is a lot of deception in the church today in America. It's there. Um, so those ones are pretty easy. Here's a big one. I think it's a huge one. And I, if I step on toes, if I step on toes, Randy, I, you can tell John Sow is our mutual friend and your pastor. Um, faithfulness over success. I, like, I think this is huge. So, so hang with me here. So, you know, in our Presbyterian system, we, have, we used to be call, call it a PIF personal information form. And the church created a what? They're great things, aren't they, Harlan? I bet you Harlan, and I say this not actually tongue-in-cheek, it's probably about the only one who is really honest on those in the way I'm going to speak. In what world, as followers of Jesus, would a church write about how great it is to a new pastor? Like, look at us. I know some of you have served, my father-in-law probably served on the committee. I wrote piffs that said, hey, look what I can do. Can you, do you hear what I'm saying? In what world would that happen for people who know that if Jesus was the audience, we would never say those things? And, and, and what it underscores is just deep we are so enculturated is this, this cult of success. This idea that we can do it. No matter how reformed we are and how much we believe in the sovereignty of God, we think we've got the answers. That's how we think as churches. And I would say that's how church planting thinks in a lot of ways too. And I just want to call foul on that. I just don't think we're being honest about how much it's penetrated into our very existence. We have this cult of success. We want leaders. I don't know where you're at, Grace Commons. I don't know where, uh, you know, we, I know in church planting, we want leaders who can do X, Y, Z, who can go build something, who have great vision, who can do these things. And, 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 and there are gifted people out there 
But we just walk such a fine line in how we approach all that. That I was at a church assessment for church planting, and they did this. I won't say which assessment they did. But in the end, with a straight face, the leader of this church planting with like 30, 40 uh, possible church planters, in the end, the graphic that was up there basically said, look at Mark Driscoll is who we want from Mars Hill. And if you don't know, go look it up. What it represents, actually, is, is, is the, the, the ego, the power, uh, the giftedness, uh, kind of like a gunslinger to clean up the Old West. We want someone that good. So I think this idea of really thinking about what faithfulness over success means in the church. Are we, in the church, lacking of such faith? And trust that if we believe what Jesus taught about how we are to go about our lives and how we live them with humility, that we would fail? Servanthood over power is related to this. You know, we're, the church is James and John and Mark 10. Hey, Jesus, we want to sit at your right. Which one of us gets to sit at your right hand? We do this all the time in the church. Churches, you know, I, there's a, there's a uh, I don't know if you guys have had this battle here, but um, we did in Illinois. Uh, there was a spirit in the church I was in that was really frustrated by the community church that was large. Resonate with that at all? Sort of just sort of a, a vibe towards it? And regardless of that church or, or the church uh, that we were in, what, what I realized is um, that they had lost power in their community, and they didn't like that. They had been the church, and they didn't like that. Didn't sit well with them. This idea of servanthood over power is, is really important. Simplicity over indulgence um, is one I won't elaborate on that. Generosity over greed. I think is a big one for a, a huge part of the church today, and that is humility over triumphalism. I think that's, that's, that's a huge kingdom value is humility. Um, John Hess gave me a book 20 years ago, and um, I let it set for a couple, couple years on my desk, maybe 25 years ago, and I read it and I fell in love with it called The Voice of Jesus. It's about discernment. looks at St. Ignatius and, and um, uh, Jonathan Edwards and um, Wesley and how they thought about discernment and why they tested the spirits, back to one of the earlier core values. Um, it's funny, I, I, I actually have led several sessions through it. I go back and reference it all the time. It's a rich book both for individuals and and for communities in terms of, of discernment. But I remember going back and asking John about that book, thanking him several years later. And, um, and I finally asked, well, did you read the book? He goes, oh, no, I was just trying to clean out my desk. And it was total classic John. He, he, he could have used that book. In there, he talks about humility. And one of the things, he, when I say humility over triumphalism, you know, triumphalism is the we win God's got it covered. We're on the winning side. Have you ever felt that spirit in the church? Have you ever seen that in the church in America? Humility sees things as they really are. It sees reality. We see ourselves, our motives, our weaknesses, our strengths, our limitations. Humility, he writes, um, means living in the conviction that we are loved, yet it also means awareness that we are sinners and need of forgiveness, though never in a manner that puts in question our assurance or confidence that we're loved. 
Humility includes refusal to judge one's neighbor, uh, letting go of the need to impress others or compare oneself with others. We need humility in the church, desperately. Imago Dei over sinner. The idea that we are every human being is created in the image of God. But that's the way we see other people versus people who are sinners. It's a huge one. Most of the church has been taught that the gospel starts in Genesis 3 at the fall. I'm only human. This is, you know, we're, we're all sinners. But actually the gospel starts in Genesis 1. God calls us very, very good. We have to reclaim a way to interact with a world around us where we might not like everything we see going on, where we may question morality, question certain things, but, but as followers of Jesus, just like Jesus did when he sat down at the well in John 4, uh, in, in John 4 uh, we have to see everyone created in the image of God. It is a huge issue plaguing the church in America. Next one is really loaded. I couldn't stop putting words on it. I'm almost finished. Conversion. It came out of our phone call, Jim, because I was reeling some stuff off at Jim, and he goes, wait a second. I believe in conversion. I said, Jim, I believe in conversion too. I did, but I didn't unpack it on the phone with you very well. Conversion over a transactional, moralistic, scripture-laced conformity masquerading as conversion. Here's one thing, you, you, you may not have read books or, or examined this, but it's, it's really clear, especially in the last couple of years. There are so many subcultural values that have nothing to do with Jesus that hold Christian communities together. They have nothing to do with Jesus. They could have to do with politics or a view of something going on in society, and people find each other. And conversion often is what, what Dallas Willard would talk about in um, Divine Conspiracy is this transactional kind of barcode Christianity. But the gospel that Jesus brings is so much bigger to, to, to be transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son that Paul talks about in Colossians. It is, it is this entering into a way of life and a relationship with God and his people that is not about checking the box so I can get into heaven. Love over anger, forgiveness over resentment, joy over self-pity. I know you may not place yourself in these boxes, but I've never seen the church in America angrier. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, you've, you've seen it. People are angry. In what world? In what world are Jesus' people not only in that place, but find it acceptable? Love, forgiveness joy over self-pity, and then hope over despair. So I think these are values that, that as we think about raising up new leaders and, and planters, just as the church as a whole, uh, we've got to go back and rehear the gospel. Because there's been some deviation as we've taken a portion, or as Peterson would say, a fraction instead of the integer. We've taken a fraction of it, and we've focused on that, and it's led us to a place that really then there is no hope for this world. But that's not the gospel I believe. The gospel I believe in, the good news is the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God, heaven has invaded earth. 
And as we are in this in-between time of already not yet, we live in that reality. I'll close with this story. Here's how I, I, I picture it. Um, when we, Lisa and I were getting ready for our first child, um, we were at seminary in Austin, and uh, we, we um, had got moved into a second bedroom because there was an opening in housing, and they knew we were having a kid, so we got like a duplex that had two bedrooms, I and mean, we were high on the hog. It was really cool. And um, I didn't know, like, I didn't know what nesting was, you know, that kind of thing. Like, I didn't know all that preparation. You know what I mean, John? I didn't know what that was. And, um, but sure enough, we're painting, we're getting a crib, we're getting a chair. Now, the stinking kid is still like five months off. The kid's not there, right? But we are preparing this room because this is how it's going to be. And as we think about what it means to follow Jesus and to be, bear witness to the reality of his kingdom. We are bearing witness to what is coming. It has come, but it is coming in full. And we now live into that reality as we await his return. Amen.